Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week we are returning to the Russia-Ukraine crisis and talking about the latest escalation. It's only been a couple of days since our special episode from the Munich Security Conference, which was completely dominated by this crisis. But uh, a lot has happened since then. It feels like many years worth of activities have uh, have taken place since I returned from Munich. And I'm really happy to have an all-star cast to help us make sense of what's going on from various different angles. First up, we have Marie Dumoulin, who is the director of ECFR's Wider Europe program, who's based in Paris, but has also for many years been a participant in a lot of the discussions around the future of Ukraine as an official in the French Foreign Office. And she's been studying a lot of the international political reactions very, very closely. Second up, we have Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, uh, returning to the podcast again. She often joins us to tell us what is going on in Putin's brain and in the Russian debate. And it'll be great to, to hear from her about that. Thirdly, we have Gustav Gressel, who's a senior policy fellow with the Wider Europe program based in Berlin. And he has been both working a lot on Ukraine for a long time, but most importantly for this, gives us granular analysis of military strategy and developments, all the different steps and turns. So it'll be wonderful to to look into the military aspects of the the crisis. And finally, also coming back to the podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, who is a policy fellow on economic statecraft, and he heads our task force on strengthening Europe against economic coercion. He's going to talk to us about the sanctions and other coercive measures which are being used um, in order to deter and to punish Russia for its incursions, uh, but also some of the ways that Russia could respond to us and, and what that means to us. So this escalating sanctions and energy and nexus. So why don't we start with you, uh, Marie We've all been glued to our television screens, talking to different governments, trying to work out what's going on. Could you summarise in a few sentences what happened since the weekend before we go into the details? There was a very intensive uh, diplomatic sequence over the weekend. President Macron talked to a number of his counterparts. He talked twice to Putin on Sunday. He talked to Zelensky. And at the end of the day, he announced a further sequence Uh, that would have led to a summit between Biden and Putin. And uh, the idea was that both had accepted that summit and that to prepare that summit, a number of other uh, meetings were needed, um, both to establish a ceasefire along the line of contacts and then to relaunch discussions on the settlement of the conflict in Donbass, but also on um, wider European security issues. Now, the announcement by Putin that Russia recognized uh, the independence of the self-declared republics um, in the Donbass put an end to this sequence. Yesterday, Biden had uh, held a speech and said the door is still open for diplomacy, but the whole sequence uh, that was envisioned is not actual anymore. Obviously, the Normandy format, if it meets again, then it would not not be about implementing the Minsk agreements because um, Putin himself said uh, there are no more uh, Minsk agreements. And basically what you will see in the next few days is not 
what was announced on on Sunday evening, but rather a number of meetings of EU member states, of NATO allies to discuss further measures to deter further um, invasion by Russia. So, Kadri, you've been following all of the rather extraordinary things that have been going on in Moscow over the last period of time. Can you explain a bit about, about what you think was going on, what you took from it, uh, these very theatrical interventions, but also where you think this is going, how the, the Russian public and expert class is reacting to what's going on as well? Yes, I think everyone in Moscow is quite shocked by the development over the last uh, week. Same time last week, we were still in the phase where um, slight de-escalation looked like a possibility after Putin's uh, theatrical meetings with uh, defence and foreign ministers. They both suggested that there is further scope for diplomacy that exercises will soon end, troops will go home. And it seemed like Russia was preparing to consolidate what it had gained in terms of opening up talks about European order and things that the West actually does not want to discuss. But Russia has been making us to discuss that with some success. So, and we thought that but Russia will now try to move on um, with that diplomacy. And then suddenly things started to escalate in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts occupied territories. And on Monday evening, as we all know, President Putin announced that the recognition of the republics. Everyone is puzzled as to why, because that decision killed off the Minsk agreements. That was a very good leverage for Moscow over Ukraine's political system. It's agreement that is negotiated by President Putin personally, and Moscow has made it very clear that they are very attached to it in its maximalist version that was never probably going to be accepted by Ukraine. So why did they let these agreements go? And it seems really like something changed over the last week. So I think everyone is puzzled. And as to what happens next, I think there are two options. One is really further military action. And uh, as Gustav will later tell us, uh, troops are all lined up and, and, and ready for that. Another option that seems more realistic to me, but I'm always being in the pieces more likely than a war camp. I think Russia would probably... I mean, Russia will employ its troops in the republics. And then I guess they are trying to get new leverage and new tension around the question of oblast borders, because Russia is recognizing the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, oblasts in their the before 2014 borders. That means including lots of territory that is currently under Ukrainian control. And that would create territorial claims and sort of new leverage when it comes to tensions, diplomacy, etc. So my view would be that Russia will now effectively create a new version of not exactly Minsk agreements, but new ways to pressure Ukraine and the West. Uh, and I think they will try to keep in talking terms with the West. They will try to continue diplomacy, not in the Minsk format anymore, but yes, with the United States and about the European order. 
But one thing is, is quite clear that Vladimir Putin is deadly serious about gaining control over Ukraine. And I think he means all of Ukraine, or at least the bulk of Ukraine, not just the oblasts, but maybe everything excluding the very Western areas that Russia considers as old Poland anyway. And it's also quite clear that this obsession is not shared by many among the political elite. If you looked at the televised Security Council meeting, these people were scared and they were not sure what to say. It was embarrassing theatre. That said, I don't think anyone is ready to challenge President Putin. Okay, why don't we go to the military side? I mean, you know, a lot of people who were predicting that there would be a war were doing it as much because of their assessment of of Russian capabilities as of Russian intentions and the capabilities of being growing thick and fast, 190,000 troops amassed on the border, gradual process of encircling as Belarus becomes this kind of central site for the concentration of Russian troops. Do you want to talk a bit about the military sides, Gustav, and, and what you think the options are and, and also how Ukraine is preparing for this as well? Yes, so we had uh, the news in the morning that uh, Zelensky ordered a partial mobilization, uh, which is sort of to call in reserve forces and veterans for territorial defense forces predominantly, which was, of course, increased the number of Ukrainian forces available for defense, particularly as they have to guard a very long border. They are basically encycled by, by Russian military formations. However, we also have to keep in mind that uh, these reserve forces are light infantry and uh, sort of Russia would employ not only heavily air forces, but also quite a lot of armor uh, and artillery. Um, and, and light infantry is, is not very well suited in standing against armor and artillery. But of course, especially with a unconventional guerrilla campaign in mind and the partisan war against the Russian occupying force, this step is, is of course important. Before we go into the details, then, what is the the kind of balance of power look like? What, how big is the Ukrainian army? <clears throat> well, the Ukrainian army as a standing force, I mean, basically high readiness infantry, uh, mechanized infantry, armor and air assault troops are is, is, is close to 70 battalions high ready, uh, which is which is quite something. I mean, it was a huge recreational effort after 2014, where the Ukrainian army was almost inexistent. Also, from the quality of the troops, the leadership, the, the professionalism of the officers, there has been a lot of change to the positive side. So it's certainly a force to reckon with. And one you have to vindicate first, it's not, it will not be a flower campaign as, as, as it was once called. So, but on the other side, the problem is that... Uh, 70 is, Italians is how many troops? Just so that people get uh, well, lines up against this them. is this is uh, roughly one hundred thousand men. But the, the problem is the man count. You know, we're not in the seventeenth century where you have one line of infantry and who has yeah. the longest wins. It, it depends on the capabilities they employ and sort of the, the 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 fighting power and the firepower they can put to the field. If you look at the Russian side, of course, they have now one hundred and ten battalion at the minimum. There, there are counts that go high on that. Uh, and just to give this into perspective, uh, the Russian force now deployed on the border and on occupied Crimea is now four times the size of the NATO response force. So four times the size of everything that Europe could put up together in the case of a military escalation. Russia has it on the border with Ukraine, only with Ukraine. Plus, we had a redeployment, especially of aerospace forces, so fighter aircraft uh, ground attack aircraft very recently and and over the last weekend also 
uh, army aviation, so attack helicopters, transport helicopters to, to launch very swift air assault operations against Ukraine. If we look into the groupings, the, the main focus of Russian sort of military attention seems to be Kiev. They are sort of the biggest, uh, the biggest formations are centered uh, are positioned to the north and to the northeast of Kiev. They're also heavily reinforced with uh, bridge building uh, uh, and combat engineering troops because they would have to cross a lot of waterways. There's the Dnepr, there's the Pripyat, there are the swamps for which they need that. And of course, they are heavily supported by air assault troops. The other big concentration, this is in, uh, sort of north of Kharkiv, another big group poised to take that uh, fairly large uh, city. And then we have Crimea as sort of the, the third largest groupings uh, where we also have a, a reinforcement of amphibious naval capabilities. They're now all out in maneuvers. Uh, basically ready at the sea to launch uh, amphibious operations against the Ukrainian mainland. We have a lot of helicopters there now that could launch uh, air assault operations plus a high concentration of ground forces and air forces. And then, of course, we have the Russian forces in the Donbass who are actually the smallest one, so the smallest offensive group in the Donbass, which suggests that if things were to escalate, the Donbass would not play a major role militarily. It plays a role as a pretext. It plays a role as a, a staging area for prov provocations. But the main thrust would be probably against Kiev. And sort of the, 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 the Russian aim, as it reads from the military preparations, would be to take Kiev as quick, quick as possible and install a puppet regime. I doubt, of course, that this puppet regime would be accepted by the Ukrainians. And this, of course, would not be the end of affairs as the Ukrainians would resist. But given sort of Putin's very special view on history and what the Ukrainians are, I, I think he, he personally especially might completely underestimate this problem. This is completely coherent with uh, Putin's speech a few days ago, where he held one hour speech talking about Ukraine and why Ukraine didn't exist historically and was a creation of the Soviets um, and of Lenin personally. And he had just like five minutes about Donetsk and Luhansk. The whole speech was about Ukraine. So maybe it's just a way to reinforce uncertainty about Russia's intention. But at this point, I'm afraid Russia's intentions are quite clear. So how, what do you think uh, they are then to take well, the whole of Ukraine? It's obviously about Ukraine. Um, it may not be about taking control militarily of Ukraine, so that though that's one of the options, and the the the, the military deployment is there for that purpose. But it may be well. One other option would be to create instability and have Zelensky uh, fall with the hope that um, Russia would be able to to install a more complacent power. I doubt this is possible, but again, Putin's speech, there is plenty of illusions about how Ukraine is like today um, in his speech. But but as Kadri and uh, said, it's it's not about the, the two regions. It's, it's really about taking control of Ukraine, politically or militarily. I fully second that. And we might sort of, when we talk about scenarios of escalation, we might see sort of Russian pressure increasing gradually. They are now shelling extensively the control line. They're sort of trying to apply pressure by other means. But at the end, because Russia thinks that by applying pressure and by, for example, selective escalation, they might actually bully Ukraine into signing to their conditions. 
I think this is elusive. And, and at the end of such an escalation letter, Putin might just uh, see that short of taking Kiev as such, he will not have a chance in, in installing a, a different regime in Kiev. So we, it might not be the lightning strike that many people talk about. For, for political reasons and political considerations, we might see now a, a gradual escalation along the ladder that at the end ends at war because Putin's ultimate aims, which he laid down, are just so irreconcilable with, with the opinion and the desires of Ukrainian society. But you all seem to sort of be agreeing that the kind of first step will be at least the kind of consolidation of the whole of the oblasts of, of Lugansk and Donetsk on the basis of self-defense, which could mean taking quite important places like Mariupol, for example. For the time being, actually, their offensive groupings in the Donbass and around it are not strong enough for that. They are strong enough to hold any Ukrainian attempt, but they are not, not yet strong enough uh, to force the Ukrainians uh, just on the contact line back to the oblast borders. And this would need uh, help either from Crimea or uh, help from the north uh, going via Kharkiv. So these other two operative groupings we I, I talked about before. And by that, basically, you stumble into a Ukraine-wide war. Yes, I also think that Mariupol would not be the uh, primary target uh, right now, because, you know, as as said already, Russia's aim is is Ukraine as a whole and the powers that be in Kiev. Taking Mariupol would make sense if they wanted to hang on to the republics only for a considerable amount of time. Then it would make it would be logical because Mariupol would make the republics much more viable. It would be one big uh, port for them, connection to the outside world, etc. Et but I think, frankly, Russia is more ambitious than that. On the other hand, though, I think there are incentives for Moscow to avoid loss of life, their own Russian, but also Ukrainian, because many people in Russia have family ties to Ukraine. And I don't think that a war with Ukraine is proved by society at all, or in terms of body bags returning to Russia, but also in terms of Ukrainian lives lost. So that is the one sort of slightly credible constraint that I that I see there because the Kremlin does care about public opinion. They conduct their own opinion polls, focus groups. They must know that that risk is not going down well. And at the very least it would impose a considerable stress test to the to the Russia's political system. If I may add something about uh, these uh, boundaries issue um, for the two regions, it's also in the short term a sort of diversion to say this is where we will push to get more territory. Um, and it's also a way to push for further discussions between Kiev, Donetsk and Luhansk, which Russia has been insisting on, knowing that this is completely unacceptable for the Ukrainian leadership. So it's it might be a way to weaken Zelensky in the short term. But uh, I agree with what has been said. It's not a long term objective. So let's look a bit at the Western response and uh, what we are doing to deter and to contain what it seems to be happening in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I think the the kind of early impressions are um, that Europeans want to, and, and the US want to maintain their ability to escalate as Putin does. So we haven't thrown everything <laughs> at 
this particular set of developments, but keeping many things back. Jonathan, do you want to talk a bit about some of the sanctions and other things which have been discussed both amongst European foreign ministers, but also President Biden released a whole uh, series of, um, of, of details on the American sanctions yesterday as well. As you were saying, some of the, the goal seems to be to leave room for to, to escalate more as, as Putin does, just as you were saying. And at the same time, what we've heard from, from um, Marie and, and Gabriel and Gustav is that uh, both the speech uh, shed some light on on you know this being that that Putin's goal is is or Putin cares about whole of, the whole of Ukraine and not not just those two regions. So and is is has violated Minsk agreement is uh, trying to redraw borders and has started an invasion into Ukraine. So in terms of the sanctions and the Europe uh, the Western response, uh, you have to do a careful balancing act not to get out the the really big guns. Just yet, because you still want to, um, uh, you're still hoping that deterrence will work and and keep Putin from doing much worse in some way at least. But at the same time, you have to get out some harsher punishment now, and that's exactly the balance that the sanctions response seems to strike. And and what's interesting is one that there's, I think. It was always clear that you wouldn't have the EU, the UK, the US, others doing exactly the same on sanctions, but and that's not necessary. But there's a it it looks um, uh, quite unified. Um, you you have elements of financial sanctions, very concrete banks. I I, um, I assume that there will be um, concrete banks added uh, to the EU's list today. Uh, and the US and the UK have have mentioned concrete banks, and and there as well. You can see, I think my 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 guess is that you're seeing exactly that. They're going for banks and they're taking financial sanctions to a new level, but at the same time, we're not yet at the stage where uh, the West is um, is uh, sanctioning Sparebank uh, or, or uh, the, the really big uh, systemically important uh, banks like BTB in Russia. And just on that and like and similarly on the oligarchs listed on uh, on you know the listings of parliamentarians and then Germany um, stopping the certification process of, of Nord Stream 2 you can there on all of these you can see I think at least an attempt to send a clear warning sign that we're willing to go a lot further and we're willing to go for you know oligarchs people close to Putin um, uh, critical to the regime and hurt them personally in in, in many ways when you freeze their assets when you when you stop them uh, from traveling to Europe to the UK to, to to the US and at the same time leave room open to to further escalation and uh, I, I will just add. Um, for now, that what's also interesting is that Japan and Australia, Canada as well, but but, but especially Japan and Australia is in, are interesting that they have joined the coalition uh, on sanctions, uh, which is which is very interesting because another objective that you have to have in mind, of course, with these sanctions and how you go about these sanctions, how, how you can just accept, I mean, how you have to punish already somewhat harshly um, uh, uh, what's happened, what's already happened now is that. The way we act on these on this in this situation might set a precedent, of course, for others. Not that you know the Taiwan situation would be it would be different from Ukraine, but it's something that everyone's watching, and um, uh, uh, certainly in Beijing as well, how the West is reacting to to this in in Ukraine, and um, and so it's very interesting that Japan and Australia are joining the coalition of sanctions, just as you could see um, uh, uh, the same happening in the other way, the other way around um, on Taiwan or in, or in other places. So do we think these sanctions are actually going to have any impact on Putin's decision-making? I mean, one of the 
things I've picked up from policymakers in Germany is, is that they fear they could actually be totally counterproductive because what we do by introducing these sanctions, particularly Nord Stream 2, is simply to increase the price of gas which therefore means that Russians have even more resources rather than less resources. It's definitely painful for us, but in, in a kind of perverse way, could actually put Russia in a better and more resilient position than it was beforehand. At the same time, a lot of the, there's some skepticism about how useful the targeting of individuals is because you know people have obviously been living with sanctions for a long period of time. They've reorganized their, their assets so that they're less responsive to this kind of pressure. I mean, what is our kind of assessment on how effective these things are? I mean, obviously makes us feel good about ourselves that we're doing something, given that we're not going to intervene militarily. This is about as far as we can go. But will it actually change Russian behaviour? It depends. I think it's complex. It could have changed. I mean, I often bring the example of how Russia was discussing its uh, foreign policy options in 2017. That's when Vladimir Putin initiated sending UN peacekeepers to Donbass, and that was widely interpreted as sort of testing the waters in an attempt to get out of Donbass and to get the European sanctions lifted. That was a specific political moment. Russia's relationship with Trump-led United States was deadlocked because of election interference, and they were looking for an opening in Europe, and that, that seemed one. That discussion was killed off when the US imposed congressional sanctions, which made uh, the European sanctions look like a drop in the ocean and, and getting them lifted would not make a huge difference. And it all died out. But, you know, they they could have worked. But there are, of course, nuances. Sanctioning individuals is never going to do the trick because all these people have their incomes in Russia and their very income depends on their good relationship with Putin's regime. And they, they cannot go against it. And of course, the sort of venues where you can voice dispute, they are not that many and you need to pick a moment. And normally sort of alternative thinking comes from so-called economic liberals, people like Alexei Kudrin. And of course, they, they are selective about when they make their case. They make it when they feel there is some chance for success. But, but when they see that it's hopeless, they don't even, even voice that. So as concerns now, I think the sanctions that really hurt Russian economy structurally could be something that could give Moscow some pause. Personal sanctions do not. You may want to do it for symbolic reasons, but and they create annoyance. I mean, some I was told about an oligarch in Moscow who couldn't buy a BMW because he sanctioned BMW would not sell him a new car. He needed to ask a friend to buy it for him. It's humiliating. It's annoying, but not a game changer at all. I, I agree uh, with Kadri, and and maybe I mean the first thing we have to recognize is that in a way our deterrence. The idea was, I mean, there was the Biden staff in January when he said, and we talked about minor incursions, which you have to correct and, and say that any incursion into Ukraine is, is something that the, the West would punish. But the idea was to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. And now we're recognizing that there's a beginning of an invasion. So the first recognition is that deterrence has to a degree not work through economic means. Um, uh, uh, but and but this, then again, the more structural measures, just like that Kadri is mentioning, 
at least in the mid to long term, would be really hurtful that we could deploy. Um, uh, you know, some some of the export controls, cut, cutting Russia off key technologies, uh, new technologies, broader financial sanctions. Jonathan, do you want to go into a bit more detail on that and like why these things are going to be so damaging? You know, they're not areas where you could have indigenous Russian solutions or get Chinese technology. In some areas you could, of course, but one is, I mean, even though we've talked for talked about it for some time now, um, uh, for the last few weeks, this was possibly something where, you know, all the financial sanctions and that we would go for all, listing oligarchs was was clear for months and, and maybe years uh, to Putin. I think this is a sort of new element that maybe came as a little bit more of a surprise um, uh, and, and, is, and is a big one and is structural because you can especially the U.S. has a lot of power because it could say that, you know, because a certain technology has U.S. content, even very little U.S. content, a chip, um, a U.S. software, these products could not go to Russia anymore. And you can, you can imagine that if you, you know, certain AI applications, you can imagine a whole lot of fundamental technology uh, not going to Russia anymore. And some of it might be, it might be that, um, that China can replace it, but but it is a fundamental question for Russia then if, if it really wants to um, be cut off, you know, Western technology altogether or in these areas. And it might be a safer bet, especially if you remember that Putin has said whoever um, uh, leads an AI will lead the world in the digital age. That uh, might be a safer bet to uh, to not be cut off uh, completely uh, from some of these applications. Also for the defense sector, which I'm sure Gustav can say much more about. And another one is is SWIFT, even though it's off the tape or, or slightly less, uh, that people t- talk less about it. I mean, that would be a measure that I'm, I I hesitate a lot about because it could have long-term adverse consequences. But uh, for us, for the West, um, uh, because it could facilitate alternative payment systems uh, between Russia and China and so forth. But in the short term, that would hit pretty pretty bad. And that would disrupt uh, the Russian financial system quite a bit if you, de- if you kicked Russia off SWIFT. And there could be a measure of where you don't do that, but you but you really go after some of the much bigger banks, especially from the U.S. side, where you would cause quite a bit of um, economic damage. So there again, if there are possibilities, I think, to affect the calculus, at least Putin has to take it into account. Maybe colleagues are saying that he just doesn't care about economics. Ultimately, that's possible. But then if we're not willing to go in militarily and risk, you know, a whole sort of different escalation, then there's. That, that might get us to the limit of what we can do. So one angle is the set of our responses to sanctions. Another is diplomatic. And the third is kind of uh, thinking about the military side. Why don't we look a bit at the military stuff and then maybe can end with you, Marie, on the on the sort of diplomatic route and whether there is still hope of, of some sort of political process, even after Putin has seemed to blow up all of the the, uh, the openings that he was offered um, uh, in recent days. But Gustav, how much are Western countries going to get involved in uh, the military aspects of this? I mean, there was talk a few weeks ago in Washington of a porcupine strategy where Ukraine would be... Um, given so many weapons and different technologies that it would it would be very difficult for the Russian bear to swallow it without significantly hurting itself. And there were lots of parallels drawn between the situation in Afghanistan and Iraq for, for, the, for the US with the Russian situation in Ukraine. How much 
military support, equipment, training is the West giving? To what extent do you think it's realistic to, to see Ukraine seriously fighting back over a long period of time if, if things escalate further? Well, I see the Ukrainians seriously fighting back. The problem is for sort of considerably altering the stakes in this game. It's too late now. The problem is that complex weapon systems and capability gaps the Ukrainians have, such as air defense, they require logistical preparations, they require extensive training, they require us developing these weapon systems into versions the Ukrainians can can really use because they need to plug into into command and control systems there, etc. So this takes months, if not years, to deliver. The sort of the last ditch military support, uh, short range anti tank weapons, etc. It's important. Kadri alluded. As Kari said for before, and I think this is very important and often forgotten, uh, the Ukrainians to average Russians are not Chechens or Syrians, uh, where they sort of let the government kill them in, in tens of thousands and don't care about it. The Russian population doesn't want this war. The, the, the relentless propaganda against Ukraine is there for a reason, because Putin needs to mobilize a society that wasn't doesn't want to go for war, to go for his war. Any of these weapon systems, even small, sort of decreases the predictability of the Russian success, the predictability of casualties on the battlefield decreases the amount Russian uh, tactical leaders can adjust their their procedures and and way of fighting to minimize casualties. Uh, So all that has a deterrent effect. The problem is we have actually wasted eight years discussing uh, weapons deliveries while not doing so. And that is is coming sourly on us. Uh, The second option, um, in November, basically, Biden ruled out that sort of there will be a military presence in Ukraine. We could at the time have decided otherwise. I remember the Kafka's 2020 exercises where actually sort of a lot of Ukrainians feared that this would be a pretext for a military escalation in the Donbass. And the British uh, and the Americans agreed that on invitation of the Ukrainian government to conduct exercises inside Ukraine and basically the two defensive positions in the Dnieper line with arguably symbolic uh, deployments, but nevertheless. Uh, so so if one would have earlier decided that that was a, a feasible course of action, one could have done so. We haven't. Uh, and we see the consequences. So, Mary, we're coming to the end of our time now. Maybe you can kind of tell us a bit more about where you think this is going to go. And then also... Uh, as part of that, talk a bit about the prospects for some sort of political settlement, because ultimately it seems likely that that has to be, well, it'd be interesting to, to know what you think, what role diplomacy is going to play in in stabilising the situation and avoiding, you know, world war, I suppose, if uh, that's the, the worst possible scenario, if this escalates further. Well, the dilemma over the last weeks has been uh, to deter Russia while at the same time try to de-escalate. Now we are in a different position because escalation or de-escalation is completely in the hands of Russia, which means on our side there will be an effort to deter even more, which will contribute in Russia's view, to escalate. So at some point, there will be a need for the resumption of diplomatic talks. I can't see what the subject of these talks can be, because, as I said earlier, the Minsk agreements are dead, and Russia will not accept to discuss the status of the two entities 
it will push for Kiev discussing with the two republics about a peace agreement at their level. So in, in, in this case, I don't see where the Normandy format or any other international format can come in. And on the other hand, the, the second issue the Russians had been pushing for was European security. And in this context, I don't see any possibility to have a meaningful discussion on these issues. So I don't know when and about what a diplomatic process can uh, resume. I hope there will be a possibility, but I don't see it now. Okay. I was about to to wrap it up, but Jonathan, you were signaling that you wanted to come back to the topic of last week's podcast, which was to what extent the Europeans and the West are going to stay united as things escalate. Do you want to say a last word or two on that? So um, basically going forward, I mean, there was a lot of talk about whether the West would be united if there was if Russia took action short of a full invasion uh, and so forth. And what we're actually seeing is that uh, now that's been the case, that's it's short of a, we're short of a full invasion, but actually we're looking pretty united now. And actually, there's I would reverse the the fear sort uh, sort of that uh, with more happening. Certainly, there's a there's a danger that if if we see some of these measures that Kadri and others uh, talked about in the beginning of you know destabilizing Ukraine, gray zone tools, etc., that could be a danger to Western unity um, uh, on how to respond. Another one though is on the very heavy measures in the case of full. Uh, invasion, uh, because it, it, some of them, you know, tough financial sanctions for from a European point of view can come with with difficulties, be it for you know energy financing and import air financing and and so forth. But but especially also if we think about this export control foreign direct product rule that the U.S. could use, which would be a powerful tool, you know, to cut Russia off key technologies. That's heavily extraterritorial, and and it's, it sort of reminds us a little bit of how we were very happy, implicitly probably as Europeans about secondary sanctions on Iran uh, in the early twenty tens um, uh, because our policies were aligned with the Obama administration. Later, the tool fell into the hands of the Trump administration and was really difficult for Europeans because of how heavily extraterritorial it is. The same could happen with the export controls if we now establish them more and more. So far, they've only been used uh, against Huawei once. Um, if we now establish them as a strong tool, uh, where the U.S. establishes them as a strong tool, you, some Europeans will certainly feel a little uneasy about how heavily extraterritorial they are, even though in this very concrete situation and, and, and on Russia, we might wish for exactly that powerful tool um, to be there and to be a deterrent and so forth. But uh, that's a thought from, uh, you know, someone who's been looking at extraterritoriality for a long time. So. Great. Well, let's um, keep that thought. We're going to be coming back to Ukraine and this crisis and all the different aspects of it, the energy crisis, the refugee crisis, the military crisis, the diplomatic crisis, and what it means for for the unity of the West and for world order, I think many times over the next few weeks, this is a really important moment, I think, in the construction or destruction of global order. And um, we're definitely going to be trying to follow all the different twists and turns and think about what it means for Europeans. But for now, I think there's just one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Marie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'm afraid it's a French book again. I'm reading a, an essay by 
Hamid Bozaslan, which is about, well, the title is L'Antidemocratie au XXIe siècle, so anti-democracy in the 21st century. And it's a comparison of uh, Russia, Turkey, Iran in terms of how the regimes function, but also their historical narrative, their ideological and intellectual background. And it's actually quite fascinating. Okay. What about you, Kadri? Well, I am reading, before I fall asleep in the evening, books by Borisa Kunin. These are detective novels set in 19th century Russia. Regular murders, regular poisonings, no hybrid warfare. Amazing. <laughs> Gustav? On, on my reading shelf, there is Karl Schmidt, Völkerrechtliche Großraumordnung. This is basically the uh, sort of the unofficial legal doctrine of the Third Reich going into the Hitler-Stalin path. Uh, Karl Schmidt was a, a legal scholar in Germany, and he developed this kind of uh, speech and then elaborated in a book on a new European order based on fears of influence and the prohibition of interference by external powers. And I was I was I was having this on the shelf while Putin had his speech, and I could almost trace the sentences in Karl Schmidt in Putin's speech. You you would have to swap Ukraine for Poland, and it's the same stuff. So if you want to get as close as in, into his thinking on international relations as it gets and be a bit scared of what to follow, Carl Schmidt is your choice. Okay, thanks. Uh, last up is you, Jonathan. I'm, uh, I've started to read uh, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate by Mary uh, Sorot. In any case, really great, like detailed. She published this as if she had known this would be highly relevant just a few late, months later in November. Uh, and it traces, you know, with lots of looking at lots of um, so far undisclosed documents uh, at the 90s and at what the West promised to Russia in terms of NATO enlargement and what it didn't, uh, particularly the latter part, uh, but also the nuances and, and the things around it. Uh, there are some nuances that are interested. And just uh, for someone at least who didn't know that much about it uh, so far, um, uh, about how this could develop into a uh, you know propaganda narrative um, uh, uh, for the Kremlin, um, uh, uh, it's highly interesting. So I cannot definitely recommend it. Okay, wonderful. So we'll put up links to all the publications we've mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. We'll also have some of the commentary that we are putting out around this crisis there as well, including the poll which we just conducted across Europe, um, which we discussed in a, in a previous podcast, but also some of the ongoing commentary that all of the people on this podcast and others in the ECFR team will be supplying as the crisis develops. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do subscribe on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. And while you're there, if you can give us a positive review and even a five-star rating, we will not complain. But for now, from Marie Dumoulin, Kadri Leek, Gustav Gresser, Jonathan Hakenbreich, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. <laughs>